Here we are, my friends, another episode of the Robcast. This is number 220, and it's called Jesus H. Christ, Part 10. And Part 10 is titled All That Waste. What a fascinating experiment this has been. Are you with me on this? To do just episode after episode on Jesus H. Christ, and we're now coming to the end. Uh, This part 10, All That Waste, is the second to last, and the next episode, part 11, um, I'll talk about what the H in Jesus H. Christ stands for, and then uh, we'll wrap this up. Honestly, to this day, the idea that you can come up with an, the idea that you you can come up with an idea, and then you can just do it, make it, try it, and see what happens. It's still to me like the great mystery of everything, the mystery of creation. You know, like that, there's that Latin phrase "ex nihilo" out of nothing. The fact that you can decide to do something, you can have an idea, you can act on it, and then you can find out what it is. You can bring it into being. I'm seriously, to me, to this day, still, never stops being fascinating. For example, uh, I should do a whole series of episodes called Jesus H. Christ, which just made me laugh, and now uh, that's what we've done for a number of months now, and now we're coming to the end. And this one especially, uh, All That Waste, Part 10. It's interesting about this one is we're going to go back through and look at a couple of stories we've already looked at, because this is this is one that almost ties together all the other ones. Um, and it's almost, it's almost as if the best way to get at it is to just show you a whole bunch of scenes, and then gradually, hopefully, you'll see what connects them, and uh, that can open up all sorts of new worlds for you. Uh, oh, by the way, um, the Holy Shift Tour, which I've been doing all year, um, is done. 40 cities. And now it's done. And the day this episode comes out, Monday, December 3rd, um, we're also releasing the Holy Shift audio. So uh, if you didn't hear the tour, I didn't come to your city, you can hear it. And Or uh, if you heard it and you were like, wait, I'm going to have to hear that again... Uh, We're releasing, you can get the audio at my site. Uh, We recorded the show live in Atlanta, which I think was the 38th show of the tour. Speaking of other interesting things that are now happening, my annual Christmas show at Largo is December 19th. You can get tickets at largo-la.com or through my site. I will link you there. And as with last year, my special guests will be the band Joseph, and so they'll do some songs, and then I'll do uh, another version of my subversive revolutionary Christmas story, Um, and uh, so that's always just, you know, Christmas show at Largo, what more do I need to say? Oh, by the way, uh, my first novel, Millones Cojones, which I can't say without laughing, Christmas special on millones cojones. So if you have that person in your life who you're like, I have no idea what to get them. How about a novel about a motivational speaker who has a meltdown? (laughs) So there's a Christmas special on millones cojones. Uh, That's all at my site. Oh, my friends, talk about burying the lead. Here we go. 
big one. This is going to be so much fun. January 1st. What better way to start the new year? Uh, my beloved long-lost sister, Elizabeth Gilbert, and I are doing a show together at Largo. That just seems like the right way to start the new year, doesn't it? So Liz and I, uh, sh this is her first, this is her Largo debut. And uh, so anyway, tickets for that will be available the week this episode comes out, largo-la.com. So did I cover it all? Um, there's a few things that are going on. But now what's going on is uh, episode, what is it? Episode 220? Part 10 of this Jesus H. Christ, um, these episodes, and it's called all, what is it called? <laughs> all, <laughs> how's that for a dramatic pause? All of a sudden I looked down at my notes. I was like, what is this called? All that waste. So I was trying to figure out how to get into this. Um, and I think the best way is to start with this story in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. And the story goes like this. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. By the way, I should do a side note on Mediterranean dining customs. Basically, you'd have a low table, and then everybody would lay on couches, almost like futon cushions, around the table, and you'd lay there with your head up at the table, propped up on your elbow. So somebody pouring oil on your head, um, it's not like you were standing or you were sitting at chair height. You were close to the ground, and somebody could come up behind you and um, pour perfume on you, and an alabaster jar very expensive perfume. That would have been a really, really big deal. And it would have uh, filled, like the aroma obviously would have filled the whole space. So this was not like a subtle gesture. So this woman pours expensive perfume on Jesus' head. The disciples see this, they're indignant. They ask, why this waste? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Jesus' students see this perfume and what it could have gone to, all the money that it could have, could have been spent in a much more sort of worthy cause. Um, this could have been used for such a better purpose. Why this waste? Now, uh, let's spend some time here on this question. Why this waste? Because it's their question about this perfume, but it's a larger question that we often find ourselves asking. Because that's the fear, isn't it? The fear is that there'll be all this waste. The fear is that you'll give yourself to something or someone, and then it'll end, or it won't go how you wanted it to. And the question that would arise is, did I waste my efforts? Uh, you give yourself to someone in a relationship, and then they leave you. And you have this like, well, that was 7, 10, 20 years of my life, and now it's gone. Or you pour yourself into a business, job, work, students. Uh, you give your kids everything, and then your kid lets you down. And that question arises, did I waste my time? Why this waste? Or uh, some art, some endeavor, and it just all falls apart and uh, it doesn't go how you wanted it to. No one cares about the project you did at work. You created something that no one appreciates. No one wants to read your book. You cared for someone, and now 
they've left you in this haunting question, like, did I just give all that time and energy? Maybe it was money, and and now it's just gone. And then uh, you go back in time, and you think of all the ways you would have done it differently if you had known then what you know now, right? But that doesn't work, because how could you have known then what you know now? Because in the moment... You're just giving yourself to life as it presents itself with all of its risk and challenge and possibilities. So when we get plagued by that longing for a do-over, that doesn't really work because I, I, I didn't know the, what I know now then. You can't go back in the same way that you can't get the perfume back in the alabaster jar. It's, the story is about perfume that gets poured out. But the disciples' question, why this waste, speaks to a much larger question, or to be more precise, a much larger fear, doesn't it? That there'll be all of this expenditure that didn't go anywhere, that we'll give ourselves to something that doesn't last or endure or produce anything. Love, time, effort, money, years, sacrifice... If you're like me, you have all of these events, moments, relationships, work, ex- projects, and you poured yourself into it. You gave yourself to it. And then it, it sort of ended, it blew up in your face, and you're thinking, did I waste my time? Like, was it even worth it? Yeah, did I waste my time, energy, effort, years, talent, money? Why this waste. It's like there's something in the disciples' question. There's like a universal human ache, longing, and question in the disciples seeing all this perfume scattered all over the floor, I assume. Why this waste? That's how they see it. But then we find out that Jesus sees it completely differently because the story goes on. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. So his line is, no, 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 no. This isn't waste. What she's done is beautiful. And then he adds a layer to it. And he says, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Well, that's a reference to to something that would happen in his culture when somebody died. There were specific rites and rituals that that Torah-observant Jewish people would do in regards to a dead body. So there's a way that you honor the dead and the passing of a loved one. And he essentially says to the disciples, you're just seeing this in terms of money and waste. Oh, you missed it. This isn't waste. This is a sacred ritual that she's enacting. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying her sacrifice, the cost, all of this waste, her sacrifice makes it sacred. It's actually the excess and the waste and the -the over-the-topness of her gesture that makes it something else, something, uh, well, for Jesus H. Christ, something divine. It's like a gift given. 
It's like something offered up to that which is greater than yourself. He has an entirely different understanding of what's happening here. It's as if he says, look at what she did. Isn't it great? And if a large amount of very expensive, a very expensive perfume ends up on the floor, well, you know, that's just how these things go, don't they? He isn't rattled at all by it. He finds it like a joyous occasion for celebration. And if the whole place stinks like perfume, well, you know, that's just how things like this go, don't they? Now, hold that sort of sketch And let's move to another story. Jesus, uh, his disciples in the Gospel of Luke, um, this is post, he's gone, he's been crucified. And Luke records, tells us this completely bizarre story about uh, two of Jesus' students. And they're walking to a village called Emmaus. There are several miles from the city of Jerusalem. They're basically walking away from the action because Jerusalem is where the movement reaches its crescendo. People are all there, and then Jesus is crucified, and so they're essentially leaving. And I can only imagine if you had left your village to follow Jesus and join this movement, and then he gets crucified as an enemy of the state, you have to go back to your job, right? You have to go back to your small town, and there were, by the way, there were lots of would-be messiahs in the first century. So if one came through town who was galvanizing, who had this power, and you dropped everything and followed them, um, that was happening quite a bit. And I can only imagine there were relatives who were like, don't, seriously, you're going to like go join the circus? You know what I mean? So when it says that these two disciples, post-Jesus crucifixion, are walking back to Emmaus, you can only assume that the party's over. Like, they thought he would be Messiah, and he's crucified as enemy of the state, so they're going home, um, and I assume they're going to have to face family and friends. Um, And everybody has a brother-in-law, right? (laughs) Right? Everybody has the brother-in-law who's like, oh, how'd that work out for you? Because all the people who stayed, I assume, will at some level do a giant collective, I told you so, when they show up. So you can imagine this walk is loaded with sort of a pathos, with a weight, um, They were talking, it says, as they walked along with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, that's just messing with people. Are you with me on this? The way that Luke tells the story, and who knows what Luke is up to here, but the idea that they would have been with Jesus for quite a few months or years, and then post-resurrection, he's walking with them and they don't recognize him. By the way, in a number of the resurrection experiences, nobody who is his closest friends recognizes him. So that should tell you a little something there. Uh, Jesus asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? He's, this is just messing with people. They stood still. So apparently they stop walking. They're standing there in the road. Their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, Jesus asked. (laughs) He's just totally punking them. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
and what is more, and then they start telling him that they've been hearing rumors that somehow he's been resurrected. Then Jesus says to them, they still don't know it's Jesus, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's like the first part of the scriptures, he explained to them what was happening, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It's like they're devastated. They've heard some rumors, but they're devastated. We thought he was the one, and that isn't how it went because he got killed. So they have a story of hope, then dismay, then devastation, then confusion, and now maybe some rumors about, wait, what? Somebody has seen him? It's all over the place for them. The word he uses to them is foolish. It's almost like, he's like, this is how these things go. How else did you think something like this would happen? He has absolutely no patience for the way that they are reading the story. So, a couple of insights. Number one, he isn't rattled at all by the twists and turns. So, the line he uses, you're so slow to believe the prophets. Um, they're essentially saying, we thought he was the Messiah. He was executor's enemy of the state. It's very normal, by the way, if you put your trust in somebody to be a new leader who's going to make a new kind of world, and then that person is executed as an enemy of the state, it's very normal to read that as a failure. That is not a weird interpretation of events to be like, yeah, he utterly failed. For Jesus, the word that he uses is slow. Didn't, didn't you understand this is how it would go down? Of course there would be a crucifixion and execution. Of course, it would appear to not end well. How else did you think it would go? The setbacks, the suffering, the execution, he never calls it anything else. No, essentially, though, that was all part of it. For him, the reading of the story is not, this is devastating loss, how are we ever going to get back from this? No, for him, it's, yeah, This is how the story goes. It all belongs. The dark nights, what appears to be failure, the waste, the questions, the dismay, the devastation, the walking back to your village knowing you're going to be ridiculed for following a failed Messiah. Yeah, yeah. It's as if undergirding all of it, for him is, yeah, how else did you think this was going to go? Of course, it's all part of it. And in fact, the way that he then explains it to them is he takes them back through the Hebrew scriptures and says, see, everybody knew this all along. This is how these sorts of things go. It's a very, very odd thing. He simply isn't rattled by all of the things that rattle us. The disciples question why this waste. For him, it isn't waste. It's a sacred ritual for these other disciples who are like, we thought he was the one, but he wasn't. And they're just heads down, downcast, standing still on the road, like completely defeated. For him, it's not defeat. It's not waste. It's not futility. It's, yeah, this is, this is how the story goes. Yeah, what's the problem? Let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> There's like an energizing. He doesn't in any way discount 
their confusion. He simply, it, yeah, yeah, there was. There was a whole number of things that happened there that were really awful. It's just, that's all part of it. Or let's add a third story to this. Uh, Jesus has this beloved friend, Lazarus, who dies. Jesus shows up, and the sisters, as we saw in an earlier story, are like, if you would have come here earlier, this wouldn't have happened. They're very straightforward about it. Jesus uh, sees everybody who's so sad because his beloved friend, they're heartbroken because his beloved friend Lazarus has died. And in uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus weeps. Now, if you've showed up and you're going to raise somebody from the dead, why weep when you can resurrect why does he stop and weep when you can heal? Why get all emotional when there's something to be done? Because he's there to fix it, to write it, correct it. He's there to raise Lazarus from the dead so that, you know, we can get on with it. But he doesn't get right to the rising from the dead part. He stops and he weeps. It's a bit odd, really. <laughs> yeah, if you're the Messiah, you're supposed to save it, not be sad about it. Yeah. Can you imagine you imagine him weeping and one of the disciples, if you're one of the disciples, like, what are we doing here? Is he is he gonna like do the thing, do the magic, do the miracle? Is he gonna like raise him from the dead or what? Like why why are we pausing to weep here? We're wasting time here. Let's get on with it. What you see again and again here with Jesus H. Christ is there's something sacred in the struggle of it all in the weeping, in the questions, in the standing there, still in the middle of the road, staring at your shoes, downcast because your whole plan fell apart. There's something holy for him in the humanity, in the full spectrum of the struggle and the humanity, in the doubt, in the questions, in the pain, in the weeping, in the heightened emotion, there's perfume on the floor and tears over a currently dead friend and crucifixions and thoroughly confused disciples. And in the Jesus H. Christ understanding of it, it's all part of it. Nothing gets denied. Nothing gets discounted. Nothing, no pain gets avoided. It simply exists in some larger landscape for him. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Now, there's a word that we often use to describe the heartaches of life. Loss, pain, relationships that didn't go anywhere, uh, things that we created that no one cared about, um, business, work, employment, kids, uh, taking care of a home whenever it feels like we wasted our time, like we lost a bunch of... There's a word we use. We use the word spent. Uh, we use this word often. We say, I spent so much time trying to make that work. I spent so much effort trying to help them. I spent so much money. Uh, I spent so much of my resources. I spent so much of my energy taking care of them. And essentially when we use this word spent, we often use it, uh, especially in times of loss and heartbreak, uh, times when that question, why this waste? We use the word spent to describe situations in which it didn't feel like we got what we expected back. Like we spent a bunch of time with that person and then they 
just walked away. Uh, no one cared about the work that we did there. I could have spent that on something else. Now, when we use this word, I could have spent that time differently, that energy differently. When we use that word spend, it implies a limited amount. In some ways, it's a financial metaphor. Um, that if that time, energy, resource, if it goes love, if it goes towards something and that something doesn't produce, doesn't produce whatever it is, success, love, a future, then it was a waste. But what you see again and again with Jesus H. Christ is that nothing gets wasted in the divine economy. All of it somehow belongs and matters. There's perfume all over the floor, and for him, it's not waste. That's what makes it sacred, holy, and divine. Or uh, we looked at the story of the garrison when Jesus says, let's go to the other side, and he and his students leave this particular Jewish world. They go to the other side of the sea, the lake, and they go to this very Greek area, the Decapolis, to the region of the Gerasenes, and they meet this man who's possessed by an evil spirit, and Jesus heals the man. The evil spirits go into the pigs. The pigs go into the water. Uh, and I know that story, seriously. But uh, what's so fascinating is the man wants to follow Jesus. I, I want to go with you guys. He begs to get in the boat and go back with him. Jesus says, no. Maybe Jesus doesn't want you to follow him. Jesus says, no. Go back to your people and tell the story of how God has had mercy on you. Now, what's interesting is you would say, why this waste? All those years, or months, or however long, the man has this evil spirit, and he's harming himself, and he's living in caves. He's like subhuman, or exhuman, essentially. Uh, all those years wasted. But then Jesus heals him. He's now in his right mind. And Jesus sends him back to his people, saying, just go tell what happened. But if he goes and tells them what happened, these people would all have had memories of this man, the man uh, who was possessed and who lived in the caves, like an animal, essentially. So all of those years that could be read as waste actually make the story that much more powerful. Yeah, look, all that time when I was a wreck and then... I got healed. So when Jesus sends him back, it's the oppression and the loss of all those years, that all becomes part of the story. It doesn't negate any of the horrific nature of it, and yet it all is included in the story this man is going to tell. What counted against suddenly counts Four. Essentially, the man goes, you saw what a wreck I was, and yet now, here I am. All that time oddly works in favor of the story. So the sweat and failure and effort and loss and tears and struggle all take place within a larger way of understanding the world and your place in it. This is what we see again and again and again with Jesus. Nothing gets wasted in this larger divine landscape or economy or space 
that he lives and moves in, this understanding he has, this Christ consciousness. Now, the fear for us, the fear is isolation, right? The fear is that you'd give your years to something and then they would be wasted. It would fail. It would turn out to be nothing. And so that effort, that love, that time spent would just exist. It would just float out there in isolation, detached from the rest of life and meaning and significance. Or that money that, that we lost, that, would just, that we spent, that would just float out there, untethered to the rest of life. That's, that's the real fear. But Jesus doesn't see these things that way. For him, it all takes place within a larger unified landscape. He says, I'm in you and you're in me and all of us in God. The divine is present in all of it. So when we talk about something being sacred, sacred is essentially another way of saying it it does not exist in isolation or detachment, but we see it being sacred, meaning we see its connection to the larger whole. It's belonging and pointing to something beyond it. And so for Jesus H. Christ, everything is happening. I and you, you and me, all of us in God, everything is happening within this connection and belonging. Nothing is just floating out there. Obviously, within the Jewish tradition, uh, you have this foundational prayer, the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is, Hear, O Israel, Lord your God, the Lord is one. Uh, the oneness, there's a fundamental oneness, a unified connection of all things, a seamless integrated reality of everything. I know, those are big words. They can sound a bit squishy. And yet, when you begin to see what's happening here again and again and again, is Jesus H. Christ operates, everything is run through this particular lens. See, for most of us, we have these categories, these binaries, these either-ors. Was it good or was it bad? Was it worthwhile or was it waste? Was it uh, an intelligent use of my time? Or, um, man, I would never do that again. We have, uh, was it efficient? Or was there all sorts of loss? Now, Jesus doesn't deny that these categories have value. They're real. He weeps because his heart is broken. Um, That perfume could have been sold, and the money could have been given to the poor, um, which he has a lot to say about in uh, that passage and others. Um, Abuse and injustice and violence and oppression and hypocrisy are real. So it's not that these categories, right and wrong, good and bad, it's not these categories don't exist. They're absolutely necessary and they help us navigate the world. They're real, but they're not everything. And so what you see with Jesus H. Christ is he both includes these categories and yet transcends them because the divine isn't trapped in just these categories. See, for many of us, the dualities battle it out. Is this good or bad, worthwhile versus waste, efficiency versus lost? And we're constantly evaluating, what is this in front of me right now? Where does it fit? How should I judge it? 
But for Jesus, the divine is all and all. The divine is in and around and through all of it. I'm in you, you and me, all of us in God. The divine is present in all of life. So while these categories are helpful at one level, they aren't the full nature of the landscape that we find ourselves in. Here's what I mean. Efficiency may not be God's highest goal for your life. While we're at it, high levels of production may not be God's highest goal for your life. <laughs> Let's set some people free here, right? Because from success as defined by the tribe or whoever may not be God's highest goal for your life. See, when the woman pours the perfume all over him, what he's essentially saying is the intention and the effort are divine. Look what she's done. What a sacred act. Not just the outcome or the efficient. Doing what she did has other value than profit and efficiency. See, pragmatism isn't always divine. Or that question, what have you produced? Uh, these can often become gods. Like, w did it work? Um, was it successful? Did it earn me whatever it wanted? Did I accomplish what I wanted to? But what that does then is it leaves us with giant questions about all of the other areas of life, the thousands of little disappointments in which we gave ourselves to something and it just didn't turn out how we wanted to. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, because again and again in this Jesus story, it's so inefficient, it's exhausting, it's frustrating. Think of how many of the stories we've looked at, one of the central themes of the story or one of the central features of the story about Jesus and his disciples is the slowness of his disciples, right? They, they just don't get it. They want to set villages on fire. They want to get rid of people. They, want, they literally at one point say, do you want us to bring down fire on these people? Like they, they aren't getting nonviolent, generous love. <laughs> it's just not happening. Again and again, he's talking about a different kind of kingdom where you're not just seeking the usual routes of power and domination. And what they're behind his back discussing is when he sort of enters power, they'll all get seats in his cabinet. Like, they just don't get it. They're a lot like us again and again. It's taking them a while to wake up. In fact, at the very end, when he's in agony um, on the eve of his crucifixion, the image that we're, the story that keeps happening is disciples can't stay awake. They keep falling asleep, which is just brilliant gospel writing, essentially saying they're having a hard time becoming enlightened, waking up to what he's actually doing here. Literally, they're sleeping because at a deep spiritual level, they're having trouble waking up to the profound truths that are being enacted in front of them. If you think about the divine taking on flesh and blood, if this is the story, if this is the Jesus H. Christ story, it's just so inefficient and exhausting. There's so much waste. There's so much not getting it. Yeah, Jesus H. Christ 
comes to free us from the idea that everything has to be impressive and useful and successful and noticeable and measurable. Yeah, Jesus H. Christ comes to free us from the idea that efficiency is God's highest goal for our life. Jesus H. Christ comes to free us from the idea that production and achievement and accomplishment are God's highest ideals for our lives. How are we doing, friends? Yeah, how are we doing? Yeah, so this will seriously set you free. This will seriously set you free. You go back through and you read these stories and you realize how much of these stories, no accountant would approve of these stories or no uh, you know, effective CEO would be like, yeah, that's, that's a good way to run things. It's In some ways, it's a giant mess. And yet, through it all, he keeps insisting, yeah, I'm doing what I see my father doing. He keeps insisting the divine is in this too. He keeps insisting, oh yeah, that's part of it. He keeps insisting, oh, you didn't read the prophets? You don't know that this is how these sorts of things go. Yeah, everybody saw this coming. Of course it would end in a disaster. How else could you save the world? (laughs) So what does this mean for you and I? A couple of thoughts. Number one, judging versus watching. How often do we rush in with decisive announcements about whatever it is? We've decided that this is, oh, look at all this waste. We rush in and say, I gave that person this many years. I gave them all those hours, and look what they've done to me. Why this waste? You lost a bunch of money on that deal. You spent money that you wish you would have not spent that way so you could spend it some different way, and you rush in with decisive announcements, beating yourself up, plagued with guilt and shame about decisions that you made. Uh, You may be judging the thing too early. There may be something else going on there. It's judging versus watching. Jesus H. Christ teaches us to watch the whole thing differently. You may be rushing in with an anguished question of why this waste, and spirit is there saying to you, oh, no, no, this is sacred. This is your heartache right here, this is sacred. You gave the, the sacrifice makes it sacred. We may, in our efforts to judge these things and these decisive pronouncements we make about people, places, and events, we may be obscuring what else is going on there. Or we dismiss something and we walk away from it and we miss all that is going on in it. Yeah, so what Jesus H. Christ does is he teaches us to hold it loosely, to pay better attention to see that, that the struggle, the cost, and the sacrifice make it, make it sacred. So when we've poured ourselves into something and it, we didn't get the outcome we wanted, we didn't get the result we wanted, we didn't achieve what we wanted, we stop and we acknowledge that all that effort and sweat and getting up early and expenditure and driving late into the night, all the endless details, that kid and all that you gave to that kid, yeah, yeah, you're... Your sacrifice makes it sacred. Nothing is wasted in this larger divine economy. Uh, A thought about control. 
we have way more control our, over our intentions and actions than we realize and way less control over the outcomes. Yeah, so you throw yourself into it. You throw yourself into it with joy. You throw yourself into it with the best that you have. You, you give yourself to it fully, whatever it is. And at the same time, you have to let the outcomes go because we have way less control over the outcomes. Obviously, what happens often is we come to see um, how our lack of control over the outcomes, so we back off on the gift we're giving. We think, ah, if I can't control how it's going to go, then maybe I just don't need to give my best. That's not how it works. No, you throw yourself into it. That's how life works. Yeah, and it may work, it may not. They may heckle you. You may end up with just a mess in a thousand pieces. You may end up with some critics. The tribe might not understand it, but man, you throw yourself into it and you acknowledge at the same time that you can't control a lot of the outcome. Yeah, that's where the, that's where the peace and love and joy is. Uh, oh, another thought. A, a phrase that helps me is, this is lots of things. So uh, you might need to write it out. This is lots of things. Have you ever had this? You went through this incredibly complex experience that was all over the place, and somebody said to you, how was it? Uh, or somebody said to you, did it go well? <laughs> and you're like, did it go well? That's, that's the cat, well or not well? Good or not good? You know, or this one, people ask you, hey, did they like it? Uh, you poured yourself into whatever it is, and... Somebody said to you, did they like it? Or with your kid, you know with your kid the thousands of things that are going on at any one time or the nine different emotions, right? And someone says, hey, how's your kid doing? Oh my word, how's my kid doing? Uh, man, that's like that. Uh, um, 50 different things. <laughs> yeah, there's hope and sadness and euphoria and conflict. It's all of these things. Yeah, this is lots of things. So even in naming what something is, sometimes what helps, it's like a release valve for the soul, is just to say, this is lots of things. Some of them I know. Anger, loss, frustration, a feeling of failure, joy, hope, love, peace, accomplishment. Yeah, some of them I don't. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and close behind, this is lots of things. Sometimes I find myself just saying, is that all it is? Uh, no. No. It, it's heartbreaking. It's tragic. It's loss. I'm really disappointed about that. Um, but is that all it is? No. No. There may be all sorts of things lurking in it that just haven't revealed themselves yet. This is essentially what happens when Jesus comes upon these disciples that are walking along and they're downcast, literally standing there in the road like, we thought he was the one, and then he was killed, and whew, now it's over. Uh, and then he begins to just take them through, oh, you missed this, oh, you missed that. There's all sorts of things that are being revealed now. You've, you just haven't seen them until now. You just haven't seen them until now. The Christ consciousness shapes you in such a way that you begin to live with the assumption, and I mean assumption in the good sense of the word, that there's always more going on here. So you're fully free to identify and name 
and explain and give language to all of the loss and all of the heartache and all the confusion and whatever it is you're going through, but you also know, you've also been learning that there's always more going on here. There's always more going on here. And so when you find yourself, why this waste? You also know, hold on, because there could be something beautiful happening here, and I just haven't seen it yet. A prayer that often helps me, uh, I've talked about it a number of times uh, on the Robcast, is just to say here. (laughs) It's like my favorite prayer, here. Uh, It's a way of offering up the bits and pieces of your experiences that you don't know what to do with. Um, Like all those little disappointments, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. All those little disappointments that can build up over time. Uh, You offer them up. And uh, this is why having some sense of a higher power, source, spirit, God, the ultimate, this is why most recovery, or all recovery begins by identifying some higher power, is if it's just on you, that makes for a very lonely universe and it makes for an incredibly heavy burden to carry. Um, but when, when you have some sense of that which is beyond yourself, let's just just basic ego development, you have some sense of that which is beyond yourself. This, uh, to me, how do you manage without it? But this idea of offering up, um, this is very ancient sort of religious, you know, sacrificial language, but there's actually tremendous help there um, when you offer these things up. You... Uh, you have that loss, that crushing defeat, that sense of failure, that sense of wandering, that sense like you just can't find your groove, that sense of longing for the thing that you want more than anything, and it just doesn't come year after year, and you offer it up here. It's like a prayer. Here, you take it, because <laughs> otherwise it's too heavy. I'm tired of carrying it. I can't carry it. Uh, this thing looks like just nothing but waste to me. There's perfume all over the floor here, and I could have spent it on so many better things. Um, And just my own sense of beating myself up, here, here, you take it. Uh, I'm telling you, this prayer, this prayer will free you. You offer it up. Uh, Perhaps this is why Jesus H. Christ continues to speak to so many of us is this insistence that you can offer up your whole life. You can offer up all the bits and pieces. You can say, here, here. This, I wanted that. I hoped for that. I really thought it was going to go that way, and it didn't. So uh, not my will, but yours. I, I, I surrender. Um, here, you, you, <laughs> you take this. <laughs> and this is not shirking responsibility. This is not opening up, owning up to your role in things. This is just the power of acknowledging that your life takes place within a larger landscape. Your life takes place within a larger economy of grace and redemption and subversive joy that works just below the surface. Yeah. And that's what you see with Jesus H. Christ, again and again and again. Is there anything that's been haunting you? Any experience, any relationship, any endeavor, business, art, some work, job, kid, and you have poured out so much 
on behalf of it. And it hasn't come back to you like you wanted it to, like you expected it to, like you think it should. And it's like a weight you've been carrying around. Perhaps you're angry, bitter, you've pulled back. The sacrifice makes it sacred. Perhaps, is there some rituals, is there some rite, is there something you can enact, is there some prayer where you can say, here, and you can offer it up? Yeah, and then you don't have to carry all that around anymore. You offer it up. This is what Jesus H. Christ teaches us to do. He teaches us to see all of life as a sacred offering. All the things that went well, all the things that didn't, all the things that resulted in achievements and awards and trophies, and all the things that are sitting in your closet that nobody cares about, right? All of it. He teaches us all of it is holy. All of it is sacred, even the waste. And may the grace and peace of Jesus H. Christ be with you as you offer it up, as you say, here.